Alrighty, let's um, make a start. If you've got your Bibles, open to John chapter 14. So we're working our way through the book of John and uh, doing anything from a chapter to a third of a chapter. But we're really slowing down this week. We're only doing three verses today. So just three. So last week in John 13, everything's falling down around the disciples. They find out that one of them is going to betray him, Peter's going to deny him, and that he would leave them. And if you go back a little bit further as well, for them to go to Jerusalem at all was like a you know, a very high chance of being killed. Was it Thomas who said, Oh, let us go back that we may die with him? <laughs> so, you know, these guys are living in very perilous times. And suddenly, what they're putting their trust in, their security, seems to be taken away. So just imagine the pain and disillusionment they would have felt at that moment. Everything they had been putting their hope and trust in, and in their case, it was the material kingdom of God on earth and deliverance from the Roman oppressors, had just vaporized, it had vanished. Everything they've been looking for was gone. And I compare it to like a thirsty man in the desert, dying of thirst, oh, there's water over there, and they get there and it's a mirage and it just disappears. So in chapter 14, Jesus is now going to take the time to reassure them and comfort them as he talks about heaven and shows us how faith can bring peace, especially in difficult times. So what Jesus tells the disciples also applies to us, and if we put it into practice, our lives will change. As we learn to put our hope in the next world and not in this world, we look beyond this world and put our hope in the next. And then, and only then, by faith in God and hope in the future, will the circumstances of this world have no power or influence over us. God's peace can reign in our hearts. So let's pray. Father, I'm just looking forward to talking about heaven today. It's a glorious topic, and I just pray that you help us to learn why heaven is such an important part of our faith, and Lord, to recognize that it just brings so much hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's just read John 14, 1 to 3. So this is the first of five reasons that Jesus gives for confidence in him and how we can get through difficult times. So the first one is heaven. So verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, just a bit of a story. Imagine, um, you know, you got limousine drivers and, and, you know, bus drivers and stuff. So, the Texas Chauffeur and Drivers Association, driver of the decade, not driver of the year, but driver of the decade, was so excited about her commendation that she invited 17 of her friends to accompany her to the award banquet. On her way there, however, she flipped the van she was driving, and although no one was seriously injured, all 17 of her passengers were hospitalized. So here's this 
driver of the decade, this safe driver, going to her award banquet for you know ten years of injury free service, and she hospitalizes all her friends. So that's what it's kind of like for these disciples, and that's what it can be like for us too. You know, we think everything's going well, and then suddenly everything just crashes. The roof caves in when things fall apart. And this is what the disciples were going through. So as I said before, um, Judas would betray him. Peter would deny him, that he would leave them. And later he tells them they're all going to leave him. They're all going to desert him. And they're probably thinking, how can this be? They've left all to follow Jesus, but now it seems as though it's all for nothing. For us, it could be a marriage that seems to be falling apart, a business that is going under, a child that is destroying their life and their family by wild living, or it could be a serious sickness, it could be cancer or something like that. Now, in this situation, we know the end of the story, right? It has a glorious ending, a fantastic ending. But do you realize that it's the same for all of us? Every difficult circumstance for us has a glorious ending. So, the people who are you know, over in Syria or Iraq or and ISIS has got them and they're about to take their head off, it's a glorious ending. I mean, think about Stephen. He was stoned, but where did he go? Straight to heaven, straight to the presence of God. So the worst of trials have a glorious ending. And for those trials that don't end so quickly, well, we also have the opportunity to enjoy our relationship with the Lord and enjoy that confidence and the, the peace that God is talking about here. Let not your hearts be troubled. So as we go through suffering, Christ is glorified and we are encouraged both during the trial and at the end of the trial. But there is a, a catch. We have to let go of our self-reliance and self-gratification. We have to die to self. Why? Well, we'll come back to that later. A couple of examples here. Paul, after he was stoned and raised from the dead and he saw the heavenly vision then, he experienced the, the, the joy of being in the presence of God in the midst of that trial. And Paul and Barnabas singing to the Lord in the Philippian prison, uh, singing to the Lord. So it's just examples where Jesus is saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's not just a, a pity saying, oh no, it's okay. It's not a pat in the back. It's not. This is something that he's, it's a command. Okay. David, in Psalm 57, he's running away from a very jealous and envious King Saul. And I'm just going to read the first three verses. It's on the screen there of, um, Psalm 57, his prayer for safety from enemies. And I just want to highlight a couple of things there. The title of the psalm is, um, it says it's of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. So it says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. 
He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and truth. So even in the midst of being the object of a manhunt, David is saying, my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge. He has made his refuge in the Lord. He's putting into practice what Jesus said a long time later, do not let your heart be troubled. He's crying out to the Lord, and he's saying, he's recognizing that God will perform all things for him. He shall send from heaven and save me. So he knows that the trial is temporary. All our trials are temporary, even if they finish in death. And what the world offers is nothing compared to what we have in Christ. God gives us peace. And through God's Spirit living in us, we can rejoice in the trial. We give thanks after the trial. And we long, as Paul said, you know, I'd rather be in heaven than here. But it's more needful for me to remain. And we're all looking for the beautiful physical presence of the Lord in heaven where we don't have a sinful nature um, distracting us and, and obscuring our vision. So now I want to turn from what it was like for the disciples and think about what it was like for Jesus at this point because last week we talked about Jesus gave that command, a new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And Jesus is putting this into practice. And so we understand what an awesome example this is. I just want to walk for a while on his sandals, so to speak. So he's just about to be nailed to the cross to absorb the sin of humanity and would remain as a lamb slain into all eternity. And that's uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So when we get to heaven, we're going to see Jesus as a lamb who's been slain. And it's no wonder he prayed, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me with such intensity that he actually sweat blood. So just think about what Jesus is going through here. So I'll read those verses. It's Luke twenty-two forty-two to 44. Father, if it is your will, Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So here in John 14, in the middle of the upper room discourse, Jesus knew that the hour of great difficulty was upon him. It's coming. It's just hours away. He's about to absorb or receive on our behalf the divine wrath, the justly deserved and accumulated punishment for the sins of every single person ever born and who is yet to be born. So if you're trying to get your head around that, he's going to take on the eternal torment, punishment, pain and despair due to be justly suffered and endured by billions of dirty, rotten, filthy sinners. All zeroed in, focused on and aimed at Jesus. So only an infinite God will be able to bear such wrath and punishment and survive. But I was thinking about it, and there's something else that Jesus suffered. Do you know what that something else is? In addition to having the wrath of God being poured out on him, would be the separation from the Father. And that's what Jesus meant when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken or abandoned me? 
You find that in Matthew 27:46. Now, the worst grief I've seen, humanly speaking, is when an old man loses his wife or an old woman loses her husband and they've been together all their lives and that pain of separation, when they're ripped apart, death takes one of them. It's just unbearable for that other person who's left behind. They've done everything together for so long and they seem to know what the other person is thinking and what they will say. Their hearts are truly joined together. And some of these people never recover because they were so close that they just can't live without their spouse. And some people lose a son or a daughter and that is also a comparable situation. And some people say it's like a part of me has died. Now think of Jesus in a fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit for eternity with a perfect infinite love. So how much greater is the pain of this separation that Jesus endured? Infinite love means infinite grief. This pain of separation, I believe, is way beyond our comprehension. And I'm wondering, as I was thinking about this, what was worse for Jesus, the pain of separation from the Father, the Holy Spirit, or bearing all the divine wrath that was poured out because of sin? And yes, they are linked, but the separation was part of that. Now, as I'm thinking about it, it just makes me really, really grateful for what Jesus, the perfect and innocent man, did for me, the dirty, wretched, rotten sinner, and all for love. And I really have no words. How am I supposed to express gratitude that would even come close to expressing thanks for even just a small part of what Jesus has done for me? And I'm learning that as I take my eyes off myself little by little, I'm more and more overwhelmed by God's love for me and his goodness directed toward me. And, you know, if there was anyone who could justify having a pity party, it was Jesus right here. Yet he doesn't. Notice how he ministers to those around him, how he practically demonstrates what he means by a new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another, John thirteen thirty four. Jesus is still esteeming the needs of others to be more important than his own needs. Even when he's in his darkest hour, when his needs were the greatest. Now, for me, when my needs are great, not as great as Jesus, but if I'm feeling tired, if I've been hurt by somebody, if uh, I've been let down, you know, if I've just had a hard day, I find it very difficult to think about other people because I'm so focused on my own pain. But Jesus even though he's, he's incredible torment here, uh, incred- he's got all these this weight pressing down on him, he's going to go through this incredible trial, he's still thinking about other people. He's esteeming them, their needs, as being more important than his own, like it says in Philippians 2. And this is an example of what we read last week, of a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So, Or another one, greater love has no man than he laid down his life for his friends. So we have to lay down our lives to love other people. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's laying down his own feelings, his own pain, and he's choosing to meet the needs of the disciples. And that's what God wants us to do. That's, that's what this love is all about, this new love, this new commandment. It's not just like the Old Testament thing where you... Um, 
you know, love others as you would do unto others as, as you would have them do to you, you know. No, this is much greater. This is a sacrificial love. And we come back to one of the verses we sang in a song this morning, Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, the main point of what I'm saying here is that we cannot do this by ourselves. We cannot love as Christ loved on our own strength. And this verse is the key. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. God has called us to love like Jesus loved. This is our calling, and he's made provision for it. We can't say, oh, that's fine for Jesus. No, no. He has given us his Holy Spirit. We have the power and the capacity to love in the way that God has commanded us to love. In Peter, it says we are partakers of the divine nature. We're not divine, but we have the divine nature in us. So there's no excuse for us to not walk in love. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So you say along with me that that seems impossible to do all the time. <laughs> all right? So what do we do? Well, we repent. We let Christ wash our feet, which is also what we just studied in, in the last couple of chapters of John. And Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's the practical separation because you walk in a dirty world. Peter said, I don't want you to clean my feet. Jesus said, if you don't let me clean your feet, you have no part with me. Later he said that Peter was clean but he still needed his feet cleaned. It's our daily walk in this dirty world, and we need to be repenting continuously. We get those thoughts coming in, we get those bad attitudes coming in, we need to keep on continuously, as the Spirit convicts us, repenting of those sins, because if there's unconfessed sin, then there's separation, and then the Spirit is quenched, and we cannot love the way Christ loved us. Okay, We cannot love others and Christ the way he loves us if the Spirit is quenched, if there's any unconfessed sin. So we're clean by the blood of Jesus, but Jesus went and washed the disciples' feet, and through that he it restores relationship. It's a picture of a practical cleansing, a clean conscience. So the teaching is given by Christ. We need to put them into practice. Obedience and repentance leads to obedience and ability to love others. And another aspect of this is that repentance involves humbling ourselves, which is coming to a more accurate or realistic understanding of who we are. And true love is humble. We can't love others if we're proud or deceived. So, for example, if I become aware that I'm selfish done something selfish then i repent straight away agreeing to god that my thought or my word or my motivation my action was selfish and i ask god to forgive and change me and cleanse me and when i do that he will change and empower me so that i'm filled with the spirit and so produce the fruits of the spirit okay it's not uh, rocket science uh, but it's just that process of dependence on the lord and having um, clean feet so to speak so again, just to summarize that, why does 
obedience and repentance lead to obedience and ability to love others because repentance involves humbling ourselves, which is coming to a more accurate or realistic understanding of who we are and true love is humble. Now, the closer we are to the Lord, the brighter his glorious light illuminates and illustrates the total depravity of our sinful nature. It is fully corrupted, fully selfish, and only looks inward. And you can read Romans 7 and 8 for that. I'm not going to go into that now. And it's only when we really get a hold of our the total depravity of our sinful nature that we cease to depend on ourselves and instead throw ourselves more and more into the ocean of God's grace, depending more and more on Him and less and less on ourselves. We become more God-dependent and less self-sufficient. So, as Jesus said in the last couple of chapters, the grain of wheat is starting to die, and a new plant, a new life, is emerging from the soil of a soft heart. So, all that for introduction. Now we'll start in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. So we've set the scene, and we've talked about a few things there. So we let not your heart be troubled. So even in the hour of his own temptation and struggle, Jesus looked at his disciples with, what word would you put in there? Compassion. Very good. Okay. And what a comfort it is to know that Jesus looks on me and you, dirty feet and all, with compassion. Now what fruit of the Spirit do you think that is? What would it come under? Love, yeah, but of the other ones. Patience, long suffering, I'm thinking gentleness. So it kind of yeah, so love. Let's just go for love. <laughs> All right. And it says, You believe in God, believe also in me. So Jesus gives this commandment, do not let your heart be troubled, and you go, Well that's you know, fine for you, Jesus, but look what we're going through. And then he gives them the way or the power to obey it. And he says, believe in God, believe also in me. We do not have to give in to the emotions of fear and despair. We really can not let our hearts be troubled. We can overcome the trials in this world. And we're going to learn how in this chapter. So faith or trust or belief is the singular key to a trouble-free heart. If we don't have faith, we will have a troubled heart. And in this chapter, Jesus goes on to give the disciples and us five reasons why we shouldn't be troubled, and why we shouldn't be troubled when things seem to be falling down around us. So the first one is heaven, and we're going to focus on that this week. So it says in verse 2 there, In my Father's house are many mansions. This is one of the things that God is asking us to believe in that Jesus is telling us we need to have faith in. If it were not so, I would have told you. So one of the keys to keep our hearts from being overwhelmed with sadness and depression is to remember that we have a home in heaven waiting for us. In the second part of that verse, I go to prepare a place. Now, some people say, ah, we haven't found it. You know, we haven't found heaven. We sent spaceships out into the universe and or our galaxy, at least. And uh, we haven't found heaven yet, so I don't think heaven exists. Well, what about this? If you take a hydrogen atom, it's very small, but it's actually mainly empty space. And if you made a hydrogen atom as big as this Earth, the electron around the the, the crust of the Earth, and 
the nucleus would only be 200 meters wide. So all the rest is just empty space. So I'll try and get this right. It's 99.9999999996% empty space. So this building, this earth we're living on is is basically just empty space. All right. And that leaves plenty of room for an unseen dimension to coexist with the material world we presently perceive. And I want to give you an example of this. 2 Kings 6.17. Do you remember the story? Elijah. The Syrians have come round and they, they want to take him. And Elijah prayed that the eyes of his servant Gehazi would be opened. And when the Lord did so, Gehazi saw angels all around and he couldn't see them before, but they're existing in a different dimension, but he can now see them. So, and it says, I go to, to prepare a place for you. This is a personal place. And you notice that he couldn't say this when Judas was there. Judas has already left. He's not preparing a place for Judas in heaven because Judas was not saved. So, as I said, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's not speaking generically. Like it's not a, a a whole block of flats or something. Okay, that's your flat and your flat and your flat. No, this is something for us specifically. What do you like? What do you enjoy? What are your desires? You know, how has God made you? He's, we're all, he's made us all different. What kind of things do you enjoy? Well, the place that God is preparing for us is something that's going to be perfect for us. It's going to be Beautiful, and it's going to fit us perfectly. We'll be completely satisfied. In verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So what is so special about heaven that makes heaven so special? It's Jesus, yeah. All right. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, the entire focus of heaven is being reunited with Jesus. Heaven is not heaven because of the gold and the pearly gates or even the presence of angels. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. Jesus is my all in all. Jesus is everything I want. Jesus is everything I need. And it's only when my life is fully focused on Jesus that I will experience complete and eternal fulfillment and satisfaction. Did you know that we have started our eternal life as soon as we're saved? This is eternal life, that you know me, okay? Now, we are made, designed to be in relationship with God. That was our purpose for being created. So in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, Adam started out as a perfect man in a perfect garden, enjoying a perfect relationship with God. It's beautiful. But then Adam sinned and the relationship with God was broken because of sin. Then in the middle of the Bible, up until the last two chapters, is God's plan of redemption, where he deals with that sin. And then in the last two chapters of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, we again see man in a beautiful garden, walking and abiding in the physical presence of God. So we start in the garden, perfect garden, walking with the Lord, and we finish in the garden, walking with the Lord. It gives us a picture of the trees and the river and, and all that kind of stuff. It's beautiful. So heaven is, you can think of it as an, a new and improved Garden of Eden where we can enjoy our relationship with God. So 
I want to talk about heaven and why it's such an important thing for our faith and why it is such an important thing to remember. First, uh, I think it's important to realize that while we are still living on this earth, we can't actually enjoy, appreciate, or recognize the reality of heaven until we first die to self. Why not? Well, the sinful nature looks to find satisfaction and fulfillment in the temporary, polluted, defiled, and perishing things of this world. The sinful nature, the old man, the old me, looks to this world, this temporary thing, things for satisfaction. It could be relationships, it could be money, it could be whatever you want, okay? But the spirit, in contrast, looks to the eternal, the heavenly city built by God where Jesus is. And that is the only place where we will experience eternal contentment and satisfaction. As Jesus said at the well, the well in John 4, he who drinks this water will thirst again talking about the physical water. But when we drink of the Lord, we won't thirst. It's a permanent quenching. So the only way to change our focus is to walk in the Spirit, which means that we need to first die to self, because if we're walking in the flesh, then we can't walk in the Spirit. We need to die to the old life so we can live the new life. That's talking about our focus. So the disciples were deeply distressed, They're in the upper room, and Jesus gives them all this bad news. Yet as the room fills with confusion, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Let not your heart be troubled. Heaven is the key. Now, I found some statistics. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, in 2009, 67% of all Australian women and 45% of Australian men believe in a literal place called heaven. Okay. And that's important because I want you to think about what our society would be like if we didn't believe in heaven. A society that didn't believe in heaven would be obsessed with youth. It would spend hundreds of millions of dollars trying to look, stay and feel young through plastic surgery, diets and exercise programs, health supplements, all this kind of thing. A society that didn't believe in heaven would spend billions of dollars on life support systems to delay facing an unknown future. In a society that didn't believe in heaven, crime would soar without the fear of eternal judgment. And the theology of a society that didn't believe in heaven would be based on the here and now, on health and prosperity. Hang on a second. Isn't that our culture? (laughs) Isn't that the way it is now? Why? Because it's just lip service. They say they believe in heaven, but they're not experiencing the reality of heaven. How do we live out the reality of heaven? And why is it so hard for people to do so? Well, firstly, in ministry, there's a lot of pressure on pastors and that to, uh, quote, teach to the times, to scratch where it itches. No one wants to hear about heaven, we are told. Preach to people here and now. You want them to feel good. You want them to have a good life, feel good about themselves. And a quote, accused of being old-fashioned because he always preached on heaven, a classic English preacher gave this response, while everyone is preaching to the times, may not this poor soul speak for eternity? (laughs) So, and I feel the same. People can talk about temporary happiness. I want to be a voice for eternity. 
You know how many times the Bible speaks of heaven? Have a guess. 557 times. So heaven is a really important thing. It's a fundamental foundational truth. In our society, did you realize that our society, I think our generation, you know, in the last few decades, is the first generation to teach that materially we can have heaven on earth. Your skin will never age. If you use our skincare products, you'll be eternally young. Buy a Benz and you'll be happy. Or more me time is what you need. So pamper yourself and you'll be happy, satisfied and complete. Or maybe it's that relationship you need. Ah, yes, that's what I need to be fulfilled and complete. And although we fall for this same pitch time and time again, each time we do, we rediscover that nothing on this earth is substantial and nothing on this side of eternity can do more than whet our appetite for heaven. So God has put eternity into our hearts, right? So deep down, we desire a place where there is no sin, no sorrow, no disease, no death, where man talks and walks with God in the cool of the day and things are right. Now, that's our base desire. That's what I believe it means when God puts eternity into the hearts of men. So we have those desires. Where are we going to get them fulfilled? We can either go to the world and seek the relationship, seek the money, seek the job, whatever it might be, to try and fulfill, the, to satisfy this, this longing, this urging. But when we do that, we lose sight of the big picture and end up depressed and discouraged. Or we can choose to forget about all this stuff and focus on heaven and keep my eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of my faith, and maintain my hope in a certain future. So whenever we consider the reality of heaven, when we remind ourselves of the, the reality of heaven and what's waiting for us, our confusion turns to clarity, our despair to delight, and our fear to faith. Now, have you heard this one before? You're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. All right. So... Believers are sometimes accused of being so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. The Bible, however, teaches the opposite. We won't be any earthly good until we are heavenly minded. Because, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen? And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. So, Paul was shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, starved, stoned, left for dead, and here he is basically declaring, if there is no heaven, then life is worthless, pointless. And that's true. Okay? What else does he say about heaven? Colossians 3.2 Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Now, Paul had a, a distinct advantage over us. He got a vision of heaven. You know, he's one of these out-of-body experiences that is absolutely true, okay? And no doubt that would contribute to his overwhelming desire to run the race, win the prize, and to live with eternity in view. Now, we may not have a heavenly vision. It would be nice if we did. But we can exercise our faith to believe that what the Bible says about heaven is true and so place our hope in it. Now, here's another thing that a lot of people struggle with. And I'll give you a story first. It's about prosperity. So I'll give you a story first. Suppose you're waiting to board a flight to Sydney and the pilot walks in saying, you are going to have the flight of your life. Smooth sailing all the way. 
I guarantee he won't hit one pocket of turbulence. You will have noise-cancelling earphones. An Epicurean experience with a seven-course meal. Your choice of the most popular movies. Sounds pretty good, right? There's only one problem. We haven't figured out how to land. We've tried it a thousand times and everybody dies. But while you're in the air, I promise your flight will be smooth and your experience fulfilling. At this point, a second pilot enters the boarding area saying, I can't promise smooth sailing. In fact, from here to Sydney, you'll no doubt hit some bumps and you might even have the urge to regurge. However, we have a perfect landing record and we will get you to your destination safely, guaranteed. So, which plane are you going to jump on? The one that's going to get you there, right? Now, Psalm 73. Asaf, I think is how you say his name. Like some of us today, we look at the wicked people, the people who aren't Christians, the people who are living for themselves. They might be good people in the world's eyes, you know, but they could be atheists and that. But they're doing well for themselves. They've got their four kids. They've got to happily married. They've got the house paid off, and they've got the, you know, they're doing sport, and they're all fit, and there's no problems in their family. And yet here we are, and we got these problems with our family, and you go, what's going on? I'd like us to read Psalm 73. So I'm going to put it up here so we've all got the same version. And it helps us to understand that heaven is worth waiting for and that everything on this earth is worth giving up for the sake of Christ. So Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness, they seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what is happening? Look at these wicked people, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. <laughs> Ever felt like that? If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O oh God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you, you hold my right hand. I've highlighted um, 
these verses, these next few verses. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny or to glory and honor. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. What a fantastic psalm. It deals with the prosperity reason that why do the wicked seem to have all this good stuff? But we need to keep our eyes on heaven. This is another reason to keep our eyes on heaven because it reminds us of our destiny and it reminds us of their destiny. Okay. So I just want to read verses 24 to 26 again. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny, honor and glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Again, it's, it's reaffirming the idea that Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my business may go bust, my marriage may fail, everything might fall apart. But God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. And that's referring back to that story about the plane. Okay, We have the plane which is comfortable, which is a picture of living life for yourself in this world. Or you can live for Christ and go through the turbulence and then you'll be going and finishing up with a safe landing in heaven. So here's a quote for an old man whose million-dollar home was one of those completely destroyed in the 1991 Oakland-Berkeley Hills fire. He said, I not only lost my house, I lost everything. My life savings were in cash, which I kept in my home. My wife and I were very careful all of our years to save our money. We were saving for a rainy day, never counting on a fiery night. So think of it this way. For the unbeliever, life on earth is as good as it gets. But for the believer, life on earth is the worst it gets because heaven is wonderful. And I'd recommend committing verses 24 to 26 to memory. And when we start getting pulled to this world, just think of those verses. Think of Jesus. Recognize that if you're starting to be drawn to those other things, you've got to come back to Christ. Okay, There's a problem in your heart. Repent. So, heaven is the promise of productivity, purpose, and fulfillment. It's important to understand about heaven because a lot of people have this thing where there's understanding of heaven where you're sitting on a cloud playing a harp and eating a grape, you know, and boring. Who wants to go to heaven? Okay. But that's not true. We like to work. Sometimes we don't like to go to work, but we like to work, true? So, God has given us desires. He's given us gifts and talents, and he's using us in this world. When we get to heaven, that's not going to change. He's going to keep using us. Look at what Revelation 22 verse 5 says, and they shall reign forever and ever. And there's a parable in Luke 19. I'll just read part of it. It says, and it's a parable about the talents, and you find it in Luke and Matthew. 
the background is money was given to some servants, which was to be invested and multiplied. So, Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Remember the disciples were thinking that Jesus was going to bring a physical kingdom and rescue them from the Roman oppression? They were looking for the good flight. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Again, a picture of Jesus. He's gone away. He's coming back. So he called ten of his servants, that's us, delivered to them ten miners, that's like three months' wages, Okay, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him. Well, this world hates Jesus. And set a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, Jesus will come back the second time, then he commanded those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your miner, or your money, has earned ten miners. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your miner has earned five miners. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. So we are going to be working in heaven. We're going to be doing things that are fulfilling, are going to be a blessing to us. And remember also that Jesus is in heaven preparing the place for us, but down here he's working in us right now to prepare us for the place. And like the parable says, the master will return and reward us. So stay focused on serving the Lord in whatever way he has called you. Now, who gets frustrated with a lack of time? Yep, okay. Me too. We ask, where did the time go? Well, my kids are growing up too fast. Or there's so much I want to do, but I cannot find the time to do it all. I personally have so many desires that will never be fulfilled here on earth. There simply isn't enough time, and it does lead to frustration. I know what I like to do with my marriage and how much time I like to spend with Marissa, and, and then with the kids. And then, you know, I'd like to help more at the school. I'd like to do more at church. I'd like to do all these things. I can't. And it does lead to frustration. Now, do the birds complain about the air in which they fly? No. Do the fish complain about the sea? No, they're quite happy, right? So only man complains about his environment because it's one in which he doesn't belong. We are made for a timeless eternity, heaven, okay? And the same also applies to death, but we'll focus on time here. C.S. Lewis said it best when he wrote, If... I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Pretty cool, eh? And according to Ecclesiastes, there is no past, present, or future in eternity. Okay? means heaven is a continual now, a continual present. And it's interesting, you know, Albert Einstein, the theory of relativity, the faster you go, the closer you get to the speed of light, Time slows down more and more until you get the speed of light and time stops. So God is light. So in God's presence, time stops. That's just a way of looking at it. I don't know if that's the reason it works like that, but it's interesting. So our lack of time, our biggest frustration here on earth, is non-existent in heaven. 
and all our other frustrations will be taken away as well. Heaven will be absolutely, wonderfully and incredibly perfect. And imagine it, no night, no need to sleep, and to be able to do anything and everything our hearts desire without being bored and without being too busy. Just nicely fulfilled. Sounds like heaven, doesn't it? (laughs) So, another objection that some people have about heaven is, um, how can heaven be perfect if those I love are still on earth? That's an interesting question. I'm going to give you one scenario. All right. If you put uh, some peanut butter into a maze and put the ants at one end, so imagine a shoebox maze, all right? You've got little walls in there, and the ants are crawling around the walls looking, they can smell the peanut butter, right? Well, if you're looking from the top, you're seeing everything. You're seeing the ants at the start, the ants eating the peanut butter and going in and out. Okay, so when we get to heaven, we're outside of time then. We can see it all. So I'm not saying this is a theological fact, but I'm, this is the way I'm, I'm tending to think these days, is that when we get to heaven, we're in the eternal present, and we don't have to wait for people to get there. I think it's just, it's there. We're there. So I, you could be, again, it's not a theological fact, it's just my opinion, but it's just what I believe. Um most likely, when we get to heaven, we'll be able to see what's going on and we'll see everything. So we'll see them as basically standing with us. Okay. Now, others are concerned about the people who won't be in heaven. So that the previous point was like you know that, that old couple where they um you know one one dies and one's left. Well, will I still be grieving for that person? No, no, in heaven you won't be grieving. Okay. But what about the situation where you know that someone's not saved, you know they're not going to be in heaven because they've already died, and I really love that person. How can heaven be a great place to be if I'm going to be grieving internally for this person? Well, I don't think you will be. A couple of verses. Um, The Amalekites who were hassling the people of Israel, God said about them, I will destroy them and remove their memory from your minds. And the psalmist, that's Deuteronomy 25.19, the psalmist picks up the same theme when on six occasions he talks specifically about the blotting out of the names of those who are against God. So it's possible, I believe, that we won't even remember the people who are not saved. Their memory will be blotted out. They'll be gone. We'll have enough to fill our mind in heaven. And heaven is also the, the answer to inequity. So we'll have our questions answered regarding these things like, why was this person born severely retarded? Why was that person born to starve as a child? Why wasn't this person here when we prayed in faith? Why was that baby allowed to be conceived only to be aborted? And why, why, why? So Psalm 139 tells us that all of our days are written in a book, meaning that God knows everything about us. But we also have a book of life. It's called our DNA. And it has all of our characteristics, appearance, and our entire being. So even that aborted baby, they still have their own DNA. They still have their own gifts, talents, personality. And when they get to heaven, that's not a theological fact, but it's my belief, based on the Old Testament, what David said, then they will be able to do what God made them to do. Okay, So we might think it's unfair that they never got to live 
when they get to heaven, their giftings, talents, personality, God will put them in a situation where they can use that. It's not over yet. The first will be last and the last will be first. So, last point. Heaven is the response to opportunity. So, for us, we've had the opportunity to hear Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But some people have rejected him. And God honors people's choices. You'll be allowed to go where you want to go. But know this, hell is not a party. It's not a place where you know you, you have fun and, and talk about your life and stuff. It's a place of outer darkness, eternal weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. You won't be able to see your friends. You'll be in isolation, I believe, and suffering, torment. But for us who have taken up Jesus on his offer as the way, the truth, and the life, congratulations, you're going to heaven. So let not your heart be troubled. <laughs> get ready, get packed, and get set. We're going home. Yeah. Father, thank you for heaven. Lord, it's where you are. It's what we desire. Really, it's who we desire. And in a way, we have heaven in our heart because you're dwelling in us, which is why we can get through life on this earth without being troubled. And um, we have a, a partial or incomplete experience of what it's like to be in your presence uh, forever, in your physical presence. And uh, we look forward to having our sin nature taken away where we can see clearly you and we can know you as we are known. And we look forward to that deep, perfect relationship that um, we'll experience with you in heaven. Lord, that's our desire. Help us to uh, continue to push aside all the things that would distract us, to repent continually, Lord, to allow you to wash our feet as you convict us, Lord, of anything selfish, anything that we do wrong in our hearts, any motivation that you, you convict us on. Help us to instantly just, oh, Lord, that's wrong. I agree with you, that's wrong. Please forgive me. Please change me. And help us to walk living by the Spirit. And as we focused on in the first part of the sermon, Lord, help us to love as you loved, to be filled with your Spirit, empowered by your Spirit, to be esteeming others' needs as more important than our own. And by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. That's what you said. So I pray that you'll help us to put these things into practice in Jesus' name. Amen.